kudos to the folks who do our stages all the time, and they've done another beautiful job. In fact, the whole church looks beautiful, doesn't it? You guys are so funny. Yeah, yeah, we want to thank them for that. You know, just a little bit of snow, and suddenly everybody's all weird, you know. Winter wonderland, Christmas almost here. It's slush, folks. It's slush. Sort of feel like today maybe my job is to bring a little realism to the season. Because you know what happens, you know what the day after Christmas is called? The day after Christmas. Why is it so much fun putting up the Christmas tree and so depressing, you know, taking all the ornaments off and packing it up into boxes and taking it down the basement and putting it on that back shelf? Day after Christmas, kids are fighting over who gets to play which Wii game first, you know, and you're cleaning up the mess because the cat threw up the tinsel and ribbon, you know, (laughs) tried to digest all over the floor. Day after Christmas, you know the next day you're going to have to go stand in that line at Target customer service to return that sweater that Aunt Gladys sent you and once again did not send a gift receipt and cut off the tags and you're going to be begging for mercy from this person that you don't even know at the customer service counter. Day after Christmas, yeah. It's coming, folks. And your parents are going to be flipping the calendar and counting how many days it is till school starts again. <laughs> Happens right after Christmas, doesn't it? <laughs> it's interesting that the Bible tells us um, a lot about that Christmas night, but very little about the day after Christmas or the days after that. I mean, try to try to picture what it was like for Mary and Joseph. I mean, we sort of idealize this scene, but the next morning they they wake up. And there are no angels singing, and the shepherds are gone, and they suddenly see what it was that the baby was sleeping in, and what they maybe were stepping in, you know, in that stable or cave or barn or whatever it was. Reality sets in fast for this couple with this newborn baby, and they need to find a more permanent place to live, and Joseph needs to find some carpentry work he can do to make a little money and try to kind of get some semblance of order and stability into their lives after this amazing event that has happened. The Bible doesn't tell us much about it, but it does tell us in the first chapter of Luke about a couple of events that take place um, not long after the birth of Jesus. Um, Joseph and Mary seem to be what we might today call observant Jews. You realize not all of the Jews in Israel and Galilee and Judea and Galilee, you know, kept all of the Jewish feasts and observed all the Jewish laws. But Mary and Joseph seem to be among those who did. And there are a couple things that God had commanded the Jewish people in regard to the birth of a baby. One was that a woman who gave birth was, because of the blood involved, was considered to be ceremonially unclean for a period of time, for about a month. And so she was not to participate in the, in the life of the temple, in the holy things, the religious things of life. And of course, if, if Joseph had been involved in the birth, which he probably would have been in this case, he also would have been unclean. And so God says there's a procedure then that the woman and the husband need to go through, you know, after a month has gone by, after they're sure all the bleeding has stopped. And in fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, God 
sort of explains what that's to be. Let me read this to you. This is from Leviticus chapter 12. It says, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonial unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. And on the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised, and then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified for her, from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. So a month goes by, and they're to go to the temple, and they're to offer a sacrifice and to be declared unclean. And in the case of a boy baby, they also would go to the temple on the eighth day, and the, the baby boy would be circumcised by the Jewish priest, which is one reason I did not become a Jewish priest, by the way. <laughs> and and they, are, they are to offer sacrifice, dedicate this child to the Lord, give him back to the Lord. And this is really interesting. We find from, all through the lives of the Jewish people, God has sort of built into their, their lives things that would remind them of the truths about God. And one of the truths was that God had brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And a part of that process is, remember the angel of death had passed over the land of Egypt and the firstborn of every Egyptian family was killed, but not the lives of the firstborn of the Jewish families. They were spared. The angel passed over them. And so God says, you know, that firstborn belongs to me. And that whole process of the, the first fruits of the grain and the first of the harvest, it belongs to God. And the first firstborn in your family also. And so in a sense, you go to the temple then and you make this offering. You give this child to the Lord in recognition of what he's done for you. And in the book of Exodus, chapter 13, it says, So consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every uh, womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So Mary and Joseph, being observant Jews, then do as the law required. They go from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to fulfill what the law had required of them. Remember, Bethlehem is only about five miles from Jerusalem, and so it would have been an easy walk for them to go to the temple. And while they are there at the temple, they encounter two amazing people. Their names were Anna and Simeon. And I want to read you the the account that Luke gives us of that meeting with these two amazing people. This is from Luke chapter 2. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation, the comfort, that means the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And saying, I can can die now. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at the very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Let's think for a minute about Anna and Simeon. They were old a little unclear in the in the Greek exactly what it means. Maybe Anna had been married to her husband seven years. He died and she lived 84 more years. Or maybe it means in total she was 84 years old. 84 is old. I'm coming to appreciate that more and more <laughs> every year. 84 is old. In those days it was really old when the lifespan, the average lifespan for a man in the in the time of the New Testament was between 45 and 50 Anna was old. And in her old age, she had become incredibly devout, and she spent all of her time in the temple. A woman that old, probably a widow, would have lived with her children or maybe even her grandchildren at this point. And it would become difficult every day to take her to the temple and then to pick her up and to bring her home. I can just sort of imagine her daughter, you know, saying to her, Well, mother, if you want to spend all of your time in the temple instead of here at home with the people who love and care about you, then I just can't keep taking you back and forth. Why don't you just go ahead and live in the temple? which is what Anna wanted. And so Anna is living in the temple. Remember, the temple isn't just that little temple building, but it's courtyards and other buildings and lots of rooms. Anna's living her life there, praying and fasting. She must have been sort of the official greeter, you know, in the temple, like we have greeters at the door. What a blessing it was. She was a prayer warrior. That's the kind of cliche that we sometimes use about people who are really into praying today, prayer warriors. You know? and we have prayer warriors here at Orchard Hill, men and women who devote themselves to praying and worshiping God and praying for you and me. I don't know if you... I don't know if any of us are aware of how much of that goes on. I had a one of our ushers one time tell me that his goal was that every time he handed a bulletin to a family, he would pray for them, pray for God to touch them during the worship service. Now maybe, you know, if you come into worship and you just feel God working in your heart, that might be part of the reason. I got an idea for you. You know, what if this year for Christmas, to somebody that you really love and care about, you gave them the gift of prayer? What if you said to them, and this needs to be somebody who isn't going to think, oh, swell, they're too cheap to buy me something. But, you know, what if you said to them, here's my gift to you this year. I'm committing myself to pray for you by name every day during this next year. What might that mean to them? And maybe you don't even tell them. Maybe it's just between you and the Holy Spirit. 
and you watch and to see what God does as a result of your praying. Because the Bible tells us, you know, that the, the prayers of God's people matter, that God, God works, you know, and He acts on the basis of our prayers. I think the key to doing that successfully would be to tie it into something regular in your life, something that you do every day. So it might be that you get the, the daily scriptures online or on your phone and maybe every time you get that, that a part of your praying would be to pray for that person. Or maybe you tie it in with something totally different. Like every time, every morning when you back the car out of the garage, that's going to be the time when you pray for that person. Or when you're shaving in the morning or for you who aren't shavers, uh, when you when you go out to get the mail and you bring it in, before you open the mail, it's a reminder to you that you're going to pray for that person. What might God do? Hannah was a prayer warrior. God used her and blessed her by giving her the opportunity to see this newborn Messiah. And then there's Simeon. Simeon also was an old man, and he'd waited for one thing all of his life, and that was for God to, to keep his promise to send the Messiah. Israel was going through hard times. It was a difficult time in the New Testament when we read the Gospels about the life of Jesus and the time of the early church. We need to realize that it was a very hard time for Israel. They were no longer a free nation. They were under the thumb of Rome. And they were being taxed and they were being oppressed in many ways that made life very hard for the average person. And it was not just that it was hard financially. It was that the glory of God was gone from Israel. You know, that thing that had made them special, that they were the people of God and God's presence and God's blessing was there upon them. And that was gone. And they believed that God had promised that someday he would do something to restore that. And as they studied the Old Testament, the Torah, they came to realize more and more that that something that God was going to do was really a someone. And that someone was called the Messiah. Remember that Messiah is a Hebrew word. It means someone who is anointed. And the practice in Israel was that a person would be anointed with oil, olive oil, kind of special olive oil, as that was a way of of crowning a king or anointing a priest, ordaining a priest, or recognizing a prophet as being a person who spoke the words of God to them, a prophet, a priest, or a king. And this Messiah would be an anointed one like that. And that's the Hebrew word, and in Greek, the language of the New Testament, that word Messiah is translated as Christ. Simeon was waiting for Christ. How long do you wait? How long do you wait before you give up on God? You know, Simeon had been waiting his whole life. I would guess that a lot in Israel had given up waiting. They thought this is how it is, this is how it's always going to be. But Simeon waited. He longed for God to answer his prayers. And that's why it becomes so exciting when before the birth of Jesus, remember the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and to Joseph to announce and explain to them what's going to happen. The way Gabriel identifies this baby who is going to be born is that he's going to be the Messiah. Let Let me just read you a little bit of what he says there. This is in Luke chapter 1. 
he, this is Gabriel talking about this baby who's going to be born. He says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him, get this, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. What's he saying? He's going to be the anointed one, the king like David. He's going to be the Christ, the Messiah. It goes on to say, you know, he's going to be the perfect priest. Because he's going to be able to offer the one perfect sacrifice that is actually going to atone for the sins of the people. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to speak God's words to us. In fact, he's going to be God in our midst. And the angel says, you'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when we sing that, that Advent song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, that was the cry of those people's hearts. Generation after generation, come, Emmanuel. We need God among us. And so God does a very gracious thing for Simeon. God reveals to him that he's not going to die before he gets to see the Messiah with his own eyes. Imagine how Simeon felt after that. I mean, that would have made the waiting in a way kind of painful and in another way so joyful to know that God was working things out so that he could keep this promise. And eventually it happens. And Simeon meets Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus there in the temple courtyard. And he recognizes who Jesus is. That God has kept his promise. And Simeon says, in effect, to God... That's all I've been living for. I'm ready to die now. Waiting is hard, isn't it? I would guess a lot of you are waiting for God today, waiting for God to do something that you prayed about maybe for a long time. Been married for eight years and you haven't been able to have a child. And you cry out to God every day. How long do you wait? You're lonely. You have nobody to share your life with. And you would give anybody, give anything if God would give you that person. And you pray and you cry out to God and you wait. And you're dealing with chronic pain and disability that hampers your life so much and you don't know how much longer you can stand it. And you cry out to God to do something and you wait. I wish I could give you a really good answer uh, that would help you in your waiting. But let me mention a couple things that I think have been helpful to me. And one is to just remember that God doesn't always give us everything we ask for. He doesn't promise to give us everything we ask for. But when He doesn't give us what we've asked for, when He doesn't answer that cry that we make to Him, it's always done in wisdom and in love. You who are parents, you, you're dealing with that with your kids right now, I bet, as Christmas is coming, and they're asking for re- weird, amazing, expensive stuff for Christmas, and you're not going to give it to them. Is it because you don't love them? Is it because you don't care about them? Is it because you want them to be frustrated? No. Because you are a wise and a loving parent and you are going to do what is best for your child. Can we believe anything less of this one of whom we sing, you are a good, good father? 
And the other thing I'm coming to realize more and more is that time is different for God. It seems to us, you know, like we wait and wait and it seems so long. From God's perspective, from God's being able to see the whole picture, maybe the time is much different. And so I would just encourage you to continue to believe in this good, good Father, to continue to pray, to cry out to Him, but to understand that God sometimes calls on us to wait. In just a minute, I want to... Um, to to try to imagine what it was like for Simeon. Um, but before we do that, I, I just want us to pray for just a minute. Lord God, you are a good, good father. And we confess to you that we become frustrated and that waiting is hard for us often. Help us to, to know you well enough and to love you enough that we're able to trust you even during those uh, long uh, or empty or painful hours of waiting. We pray in the name of Jesus, who was the Messiah, the Christ. Amen. Okay, I'd like for you to uh, join your imagination with mine for just a minute. And um, I'd like to introduce you to Simeon. Anybody not see what is right there before their eyes. Oh, my Martha used to get so frustrated with me. Martha, I can't find my sandals. Where did you put them? And she'd call in and she'd say, they're right there beside the cot where you left them. No, they're not. I've looked all over for them. And then she'd come in wiping her hands on her apron and she'd go over to right where they were and she'd pick them up and hand them to me and give me that look like I was a foolish child. <laughs> Maybe I was. I miss her so much. <laughs> it's been 25 years since Martha died. It was really after she died that I began spending more and more time in the temple. Maybe it was my... My loneliness, my missing Martha, that made me long more and more for the presence of God in Israel. Where was God? Why did he not keep his promise? Why did he not answer our prayers? A thousand years. It had been a thousand years since David had been king. Where was this son of David that God would send most people had given up waiting and expecting and praying. And I was tempted to as well. It was a hard time for Israel. Rome had crushed us under its heel. Herod's soldiers were watching for anybody to step out of line one little bit. We cried out to God, Where are you, God? Where are you? We came to understand that God must send someone to save us. But who would that someone be? No one knew. And one day, as I was in the temple, and I was, I was deep in prayer, and I heard a voice. 
voice spoke to me as clearly as I'm speaking to you now. He said, Simeon. Yeah, he, he, he called me by my name. He said, Simeon. He said, Simeon, the time is near. You will see my Messiah with your own eyes before you die. I can't describe to you how that made me feel. To know that during my, my lifetime, God would answer that prayer. But I waited. The year passed, and another year, and there was no Messiah. And then I began to be afraid. Maybe, maybe I had misunderstood God. Maybe, maybe the Messiah was there before me, and I didn't see Him. And that's when I was driven to the Torah. I looked to see everything that God said about His Messiah, what He would be like, who He would be. So that when He came, I would see Him, I would know Him, and I began to look through His Word to find the things that God had said. God had said that He would be a king. Yes, I wonder how old He would be. Surely in the prime of His life, a a strong warrior, a a ruler, a, a statesman. But then I read something strange, that He would come from... Nazareth, a Nazarene, surely not. He was to be the son of of David. He would be from David's royal city. Yes, I found it there in Micah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He would be a mighty man, surely. But then I became so confused. I read in Isaiah how he was described. Here is my servant, Isaiah said. My chosen one in whom I delight. I will will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for my people. A light for the Gentiles. God's Messiah surely was for Israel, not not for the world. He was to be not only a great king like David, but a shepherd king like David. In Isaiah 61, it said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn. I longed to see him. I was so afraid I would miss him. Time passed, and he did not come. And then one day, I was in the temple praying Or maybe I had fallen asleep. And I heard a voice again. Simeon, the voice said. I knew the voice, but I couldn't recognize it. And he called again, Simeon. And I knew it was the Lord's voice speaking in my heart as he had those years before. Simeon, he said, he is here. The one you have longed for is here. And I looked around in the temple courtyard. There were, there were few people there that morning. And I saw him. And I knew it must be him. He was a tall man, strong, broad of shoulder. But 
a common man, a, a laborer. Lord, surely this is not the king. And then one final time, the Lord spoke to me. And he whispered into my heart, Not the father, Simeon, the baby. And I looked and there was the man, was his wife and child. I went over to them. She was just a wisp of a girl, hardly old enough to be a mother. And the father stood protectively in front of her and she held a baby in her arms. He is... He is special, is he not? Oh yes, she said, he is special, as all children are. Uh, no, I mean he is, he is special in another way. I've waited for him my whole life. Then you know who he is, she said. How could you know? Who told you? I said, his father told me. And the father stepped up and he said, I told no one, I swear, no one heard this from me. And then a smile crossed his face and he said, Oh, you mean his true father. May I hold him? I asked. And she gently handed him to me and I took him and even in my old weak arms he weighed nothing at all. He took hold of my finger with his little hand and I realized that all of my waiting was over. That God, our faithful God, had answered his prayers for Israel and that in this little child lay the hope of the world. I kissed him and blessed his mother and father and gave him back and I watched as they walked on across the courtyard. Oh, Lord, now, now you can let your servant depart in peace. My eyes have beheld your salvation, a light for the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Did you know that God is waiting? The Bible says that God could just, with a snap of his fingers, dissolve the universe and it would be over. That any time he chose, he could send his son Jesus to come in glory and power with his holy angels and bring humanity as we know it to an end. The Bible says God is waiting that more and more might come to know his love and forgiveness. You know, it might be that God is waiting for you. It might be that God is longing for you to come to know this one who came as a baby who died as a man on the cross to know his forgiveness that God is reaching out to you what a great thing it would be if, if during this Christmas time you might experience that love and forgiveness that God deeply desires to give to you if you're waiting, struggling with waiting I would recommend maybe you would read Psalm 40 that begins by saying you know, I waited upon the Lord and he heard my cry let's uh Let's join in waiting together upon the Lord in His will. Thanks so much for coming today. God bless you. Lord willing, we'll see you again next Sunday.